Hello and welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Jenny and every week to two weeks I release a new true crime video about a case somewhere in the world. So if you are interested in true crime I highly suggest you hit that subscribe button because I'm sure that you will not be disappointed. Today we're talking about Beverly Allett. The UK's angel of death as she is known. So before we get started I do just want to give a quick warning that today's video contains descriptions of violence against children, um, babies, so if that's something that is quite triggering for you I do suggest you click away now and hopefully I will see you in a video that is a little bit more appropriate for you. Okay so with that being said let's go ahead and get into today's story. Beverly Allett, or the Angel of Death as she became known, is one of Britain's most notorious female serial killers. And I think that part of what makes Beverly's crimes as shocking as they are is that she operated under the pretense of being somebody that these parents could trust and turn to. While she was embarking on her killing spree that took the lives of four innocent children and the attempted murder of nine others, she was befriending and gaining the trust of the parents of these victims. In February 1991, Grantham and Kesteven District Hospital in Lincolnshire in the UK were struggling under the pressure of chronic understaffing and lack of resources. It was a small hospital that served the rural areas of Grantham, so it wasn't particularly busy. But the staff were having a really difficult time dealing with the lack of resources and were putting a lot of pressure on management to solve the problem. So when 22-year-old Beverly Gale Allett applied for a job, management were willing to kind of overlook a few glaring holes in her training and bypass the usual vetting process that would happen today when hiring a new nurse. Beverly had barely passed nursing school. In fact, she called in sick for about 126 days during her two-year period of studies. We will discuss that in more depth a little bit later on. The nursing manager and ward sister, who was pretty much like the charge nurse, were very reluctant to hire Allett. And in fact, none of the adult wards would take her because she was so unqualified. But Ward 4, the pediatric ward, were so understaffed that they agreed to hire her on a short contract beginning on the 15th of February 1991. And although Beverly didn't have the right training to work with children, the staff on Ward 4 felt that a second pair of hands was honestly better than nothing at this point. And it would seem that hiring Allett was not a day too soon, because in the 59-day period following Allett's arrival on Ward 4, the hospital experienced a horrifying spike of emergency incidents resulting in death and permanent damage in their young, vulnerable patients. The larger Queen's Hospital in Nottingham would treat around 40,000 children a year, averaging just six cardiac arrests usually. But in 1991, six cardiac arrests were referred from Grantham alone. Now during this time, Beverly Allett proved herself to be an excellent asset to the team in Ward 4 and the parents of the children adored her. In fact, parents would often request that Allett be the one to monitor their sick children. She seemed to have a sixth sense for danger. She always seemed to be there when trouble would strike and she was always the first to raise the alarm. The staff in the children's ward worked hard to make the place feel warm, inviting and safe for the patients and families. And 
By all accounts, Beverly Ellett fit right in with this. She was cheerful, happy, and she always reassured the parents that their children would be in the best possible care and she would devote all of her time and attention towards them. And sadly, because of this, none of the staff or the parents suspected Beverly Ellett of the terrible crimes that she was actually carrying out. Most of the children who came into Ward 4 were admitted for nothing too serious. The vast majority of them were treated and made a full recovery and were sent home. But less than a week into Beverly's arrival on the ward, strange things began to happen. Things started to go missing and some of the staff noticed things missing from their purses and their lockers and the key to the medicine cabinet mysteriously disappeared as well. However, the true nightmare began on February 21st, 1991, just six days after Beverly Allett was hired. Seven-week-old Liam Taylor was admitted to Ward 4 with a chest infection. His condition was not life-threatening and he had no prior history of heart disease and he showed no signs of having poor heart health. Allett met Liam's parents, Chris Taylor and his wife when they arrived on the ward. Beverly was assigned special responsibility to Liam and she reassured his parents that she would take good care of him. She then persuaded them to go home and get some rest. Within just hours, Liam suffered a respiratory collapse. And strangely, the monitors that he'd been hooked up to failed to go off. But thankfully, Beverly Allard had been looking after him at the time and she was there ready to raise the alarm. The charge nurse was pretty confused about this because she checked in with Liam before she went on her meal break and she had thought he was well and it was only minutes after she left that he had suffered his respiratory arrest so it was quite unexpected. When Liam's parents came back to the ward Beverly told them that he'd suffered a respiratory emergency and had been violently sick across the room. She told Liam's parents that she would needed to change her overalls because she was soaked in his vomit. And again, the senior nurse in charge was very confused about this. She said that if Liam had really been as sick as he had, and if he'd had a history of respiratory difficulties, she would have known about it. She said that Alet had never told her of Liam's vomiting or respiratory troubles. The following morning, Liam appeared to be doing well. He'd opened his eyes and he was reaching for his teddy bear. His father said that he seemed 100% better. But because of Liam's respiratory arrest the night before, the staff were worried he might crash again. So they urged the parents to keep Liam in overnight just to be safe. Beverly Allett volunteered for an additional night duty to monitor Liam. Liam's parents felt confident that they were leaving their son in good hands and even though they decided to stay in the hospital that night, they went to have a sleep in the parents' room on the ward. And sadly, by five o'clock in the morning, they were woken with news that Liam had suffered yet another heart attack. Liam deteriorated at around 4 a.m. on the 23rd of February. A charge nurse at the time said that Beverly had asked him to go and get more catheters. He left the room and when he returned, Beverly Allett was yet again raising the alarm, saying that Liam was white and blotchy and he'd stopped breathing. And once again, Liam's monitors mysteriously failed. So it was all thanks to Ms. Allett that the alarm was raised. A specialist team arrived quickly, but sadly, Liam's heart had already begun to give out. They spent an hour working to revive Liam, but sadly, because he'd been deprived of oxygen for so long, the poor boy suffered major, major brain damage. 
In fact, he was so badly impacted that he had to be put on a life support system and that was the only way that he was being kept alive. After some time, his poor parents made the agonizing decision to remove their seven week old son from life support and Liam sadly died. The cause of death listed on Liam's death certificate was a heart attack. But Dr. Nanyakara, who worked on the ward at that time, was very suspicious of that diagnosis. Because the weeks old infant had no prior history of heart troubles, it was incredibly unusual that a perfectly healthy young baby would have multiple cardiac arrests like that. He also thought it was strange that several times the monitors had failed to go off. So because of this, Dr. Nanyakara wrote to the medical examiner requesting a post-mortem and that an investigation be carried out into Liam's death, but ultimately his request was denied. Despite being shaken by the sudden and unexpected death of a child on their wards, nobody suspected that Beverly Allard had had anything to do with his sudden decline. But they hardly had any time to think about it anyway, because just two weeks after Liam's death, 11-year-old Timothy Hardwick with cerebral palsy was admitted after having suffered a seizure during school on the 5th of March 1991. Because he had cerebral palsy, Timothy required special care and attention. And of course, the head nurse asked Beverly Allett to monitor him while she did her rounds. But before she could even finish doing her rounds, the head nurse was called back into Timothy's room. He had stopped breathing, he had no pulse, and he was turning blue. And sadly, despite the best efforts of the team, including a pediatric specialist, they were unable to revive Timothy Hardwick. He died the same day that he was admitted on the 5th of March, 1991. An autopsy later failed to provide a clear cause of death and it was ultimately ruled to be as a result of his epilepsy. On the 8th of March 1991, 15-month-old Kaylee Desmond was admitted to Ward 4 with a suspected chest infection, for which she was recovering well. Five days later, with Beverly Allett constantly by her side as her nurse, she suffered not one but two cardiac arrests in the same bed that Liam Taylor had been when he died just two weeks prior. Fortunately, the resus team were able to revive her and she was transferred to the larger Queen's Hospital in Nottingham. While there, she did make a full recovery, but sadly, because of oxygen deprivation, she too suffered lifelong physical ailments and developmental disabilities. When she arrived at Queen's Hospital, staff noticed a puncture wound under her armpit and an air bubble beneath it. They assumed that because she was an infant, it was probably the result of an accidental puncture, perhaps trying to administer something else and being unable to get the baby to stay still. So they chose not to investigate it. Paul Crampton was five months old when he was admitted to Ward 4 with a chest infection on the 20th of March, 1991. It was a precautionary visit and doctors were happy to discharge Paul and send him home. But because Paul had been born premature, his parents just wanted to be on the safe side and keep him in overnight for observation just to make sure that nothing went wrong, basically. Obviously, they thought that their child was in the best possible place to be and that if anything went wrong, he would have the care he needed. On the afternoon that Paul was admitted, he suffered his first collapse. Again, Alec was in the room with him and promptly sounded the alarm. 
When Dr. Nanyakara arrived in Paul's room, he found him sweaty, unresponsive, listless, and pale. He was very surprised because this had nothing to do with a chest infection. And incredibly, Beverly Allett was the one to suggest hypoglycemia as potentially being the cause of this collapse. They tested for hypoglycemia and she was right. So they treated Paul by giving him glucose and he started to recover. The day after Paul was admitted, two more children would suffer unexplained collapses. Five-year-old Bradley Gibson, who was on the ward with pneumonia, and two-year-old Yik Hun Chan, otherwise known as Henry, who had a slight skull fracture, both suffered attacks. Bradley Gibson was admitted to the ward with a nasty cough, and once again, Beverly Elliott was assigned to care for him. At around 3am, Bradley complained that his drip was starting to cause him pain, and Beverly came in to check on him. While she was there, he suddenly slumped forward, stopped breathing, and suffered a cardiac arrest. The crash team spent 32 minutes trying to resuscitate Bradley Gibson, shocking him seven to eight times to try and restart his heart. Fortunately, they were able to revive him, but they were just moments away from giving up. And although he survived due to the lack of oxygen to his brain, Bradley suffered permanent brain damage. As a result of his injuries, he lost the use of his legs, he lost control of his bladder for a number of years following the attack, and to this day, he struggles with PTSD. Fortunately, Bradley was transferred to Queen's Hospital where he managed to make a generally full recovery. Poor Henry, who came in with a skull fracture, obviously nothing to do with heart problems or diabetes, suffered two respiratory attacks. He also was transferred to Nottingham and thankfully he made a full recovery. Now by this point, Beverly Allett was due to go off duty for three days and staff were still keeping a close eye on Paul who they were concerned could crash again at any time. After the three day period, Paul made a really good recovery. He seemed to be doing very well and Dr. Nanyakara was preparing him for discharge. But because of his unexplained collapses, the parents were obviously very worried. So they asked Dr. Nanikara if they could keep their son on the ward for one more night just to play it safe. And the doctor agreed. A decision which he says he still regrets very much to this day. Because the next day, Alec was back on duty. Paul was looking well and doctors were happy to discharge him. So Dr. Nanyakara asked Beverly Allett to go and start removing the IV drips and preparing Paul for discharge. Mysteriously, when Allett went to remove Paul's IV, he suffered another respiratory attack. Paul's parents, who had been anxiously waiting around the hospital for the entire duration of his stay, happened to have popped out at that moment. When they returned, they found their baby gray, clammy, listless, and surrounded by a crash team. Again, Paul was treated for low blood sugar, but this time he was transferred to Queen's Hospital. But fortunately, before he left, Dr. Nanikara decided to take a blood sample to try and figure out why Paul kept having these unexpected and unexplained respiratory attacks. Paul was transferred via ambulance and Beverly Allett actually accompanied Paul's parents in the ambulance to the hospital. As soon as Paul was admitted, he made a full recovery. Now at this stage, the staff at Grantham were starting to get a bit suspicious. For six children to suffer such sudden and unexplained collapses and for two of them to die within the space of just two months was well outside the ordinary. 
They started to wonder if there was a mysterious virus traveling around or if there was something going on within the hospital walls or if something they were using was contaminated and making these children sick. It started to become really difficult for people to just walk onto the ward. They were taking this really seriously and wanted to avoid the risk of contamination or spreading disease as much as possible. And while they waited for Paul Crampton's blood results to come back, more children started suffering serious attacks. On the 1st of April 1991, twins Katie and Becky were kept in for observation at the hospital after being born prematurely. They were just two months old at this time and a bout of gastroenteritis brought Becky onto Ward 4 where Nurse Allard was assigned to care for her. Two days later, Allard raised the alarm. She said that Becky appeared to be hypoglycemic, but ultimately no illness was found. Baby Becky was sent home with her mother. During the night when they had gone home with their daughter Becky, she suffered convulsions and appeared to cry out in pain. Her parents phoned a doctor to come and check on her, but he said it was probably just colic. Her parents kept her in their bed for observation so they can keep an eye on her, but tragically, Becky died in the night. The pathologist could not find any clear reason for her death. Becky's surviving twin, Katie, was admitted to Ward 4 as a precaution. And unfortunately for her, again, Beverly Ellett was the only nurse on duty who was allocated to care for her. And of course, it wasn't long before Beverly was once again summoning a resuscitation team, but this time for Katie. She had stopped breathing, and fortunately, efforts to revive her were successful. But just two days later, she suffered yet another attack. And this time, her lungs had collapsed. Following another revival effort, Katie was transferred to the Queen's Hospital in Nottingham. Once she got there, they found that five of her ribs were broken, known as squeeze fractures. And the staff assumed that the broken ribs must be as a result of CPR, so no investigation was carried out. Katie survived, but she was left with serious brain damage. She also suffered from partial paralysis and partial blindness. And here is what is really twisted about this story. I mean, it's all twisted, but Becky and Katie's parents were so grateful to Beverly Allett that she had been the first to notify the team when their children were suffering, that they actually asked Beverly Allett if she would be Katie's godmother. That is how much these parents trusted this woman with their babies. They had no idea what was going on. So a few days later, six-year-old Michael Davidson was admitted for post-operative recovery after he'd been accidentally shot with an air rifle. He seemed to be doing very well until one of his regularly scheduled antibiotic injections. Following this, which was administered by Beverly Allen, he had a seizure and he stopped breathing. But thankfully, the resus team were able to revive him and he made a full recovery. And then, on April 22nd, 1991, 15-month-old Claire Peck was admitted to Ward 4 with asthma-related complications and required a breathing tube. The doctor left the room just for a few minutes to talk with Claire's parents, and Beverly Allett was left alone with her. Within this tiny window of time, Claire went into respiratory failure. They managed to resuscitate her, she was put on a ventilator, and the doctor once again stepped out of the room to talk with Claire's parents. Once again, in that tiny window of time, just minutes that she was left alone in Alec's care, she suffered yet another heart attack, and 
tragically, this time she could not be resuscitated. Now, although an autopsy into Claire Pegg's death said that she died of natural causes, a consultant at the hospital disputed this. Dr. Nelson Porter initiated an inquiry because he was rightly alarmed at the high number of cardiac arrests that were happening on children's ward four. And as I mentioned, an airborne virus was initially considered to be the cause of this, but then a test later revealed that there were high levels of potassium in baby Claire's blood, a drug that in high enough levels can cause arrhythmia and even death. So now with evidence that there was probably foul play at hand, the hospital administration took their concerns to the police on the 30th of April, 1991. Police superintendent Stuart Clifton was put in charge of the investigation. And once he looked over the medical charts of the children who had suffered attacks, including both those that had died and recovered, he began to suspect that there was a serial killer on Ward 4. But of course, this was very much unheard of and the staff just couldn't believe it because obviously in a children's ward you would assume that people who worked there were kind caring people and they had no reason to suspect that anyone among them could be capable of such a truly abhorrent act. To begin with, investigators ordered that Claire Peck be exhumed. Tests showed not only the high level of potassium in her bloodstream but evidence of lignocaine a drug usually administered to deal with cardiac arrests, but never ever given to infants. Now they were even more certain that there was something terrible going on in Ward 4. So they began to question staff. None of them seemed suspicious at all, but there was the question of the missing medicine cabinet key. Beverly Ellett was the last person to have this key, although she claimed she knew nothing about it and that she'd given it to another nurse, even though evidence shows that she was the last person to have it. So police began by creating a chart of the children who had attacks and who was on duty at the time of those attacks. And in every single instance, Beverly Allett was not only on duty at the time that it happened, but she was present in the room and the first to raise the alarm. Police brought in Allett for questioning, but she was adamant that she was innocent. In fact, she even denied being on duty during some of the times that it was said she was on the roster, even though other staff said, yeah, she was, we saw her there. Also, suspiciously, the allocation notebook or duty roster was missing several pages, pages of which correlated with the dates of the patient attacks. These were unable to be found. So without any concrete evidence, investigators were unable to arrest Beverly Allett, although they begged with the administration of Grantham and Kesteven Hospital to remove her from their staff to prevent her from having access to any more patients ever again. Administration agreed and they suspended Beverly Allett from duty. Now her colleagues were absolutely stunned. They could not believe that this soft-spoken, kind-hearted young woman could be capable of such a heinous crime. In fact, several of the parents of the victims took to Alet's defense. In fact, one set of parents even hired a private investigator to do their own digging just to prove that Beverly Alet wasn't responsible for these crimes. Dr. Nanyakara, who worked on the ward at the same time, just could not conceive that a member of his team would be capable of carrying out a crime this bad right under his nose. Now that she was out of work, Beverly Allett moved out of her apartment and in with her friend Tracy Jobson and her family in Peterborough. 
Now investigators needed to work on finding evidence to actually bring about charges, and this was very difficult to prove. It's hard to prove that something is a malicious act rather than a simple case of medical misadventure, and this is a lot of the time why it's really difficult to catch these murderous doctors and nurses, and why so many of them can go on without facing charges for as long as they do. The police investigation team learned that several of Alec's victims had been transferred to Nottingham, and they decided to go there and see if there were any records on file for these patients. And for once, luck was actually on their side. The hospital had routinely taken blood samples of their patients, and they still had them all on file. Investigators were able to locate 13 samples taken from children who were kept under Alet's care and they sent them away for testing, which could take weeks. Meanwhile, investigators got to work looking into Beverly Alet's background, looking for any red flags, and at first, there didn't seem to be any. Beverly Gale Allett was born on October the 4th, 1968, in the nearby village of Corby Glen. She was the second of four children, and her life seemed, by all accounts, totally ordinary. There were no allegations of abuse or other negative influences. Her father Richard worked at an off-license, and her mother Lillian worked as a cleaner at a local school. And by all accounts, her parents and their other two children didn't see anything particularly suspicious or odd about Beverly's behavior in her childhood. Mostly, she just seemed to be a rather dull girl. She wasn't a very good student, and she failed an examination that would have allowed her to move on to high-level schooling with her sibling. Neighbors said that Beverly would often volunteer for every single babysitting job going. And on the whole, they spoke of Beverly with affection as being a person who loved and cared for and hugged babies, and were bewildered at the thought that she would be this person who would be callously murdering others. But then a different picture began to form of a woman who seemed to attract bad luck wherever she went. Wherever Beverly Allett was, weird things began to happen. She always seemed to be struck down with some mysterious ailment or illness or injury that she couldn't explain. Her low grades seemed to be as a result of her needing to take so many days off school because of sickness. Classmates and family members said that Beverly always seemed to want to be the center of attention, and she'd often fake illnesses and injuries just to get it. As a child, Beverly Allett would often wear bandages and slings and casts over mysterious wounds that she would not allow to be examined. And as she grew into her adolescence, she rapidly put on a lot of weight. Some people say that this was another form of her attention-seeking behavior. And from teenage years onwards, Beverly's temperament really began to change. She became incredibly volatile, hostile, and quite abusive towards the people in her life. She'd always be complaining of a series of physical ailments that would see her wind up in hospital. She'd had gallbladder pain, headaches, urinary tract infections, uncontrollable vomiting, ulcers, blurred vision, appendicitis, and back trouble, just to name a few. 
And in fact, Beverly Allett actually managed to persuade a doctor to remove her perfectly healthy appendix, claiming that she had appendicitis. She had faked the symptoms so well. And then the surgery and the scar was very, very slow to heal because she could just not resist the urge of picking at the wound, pulling out her stitches. And she'd hurt herself in other ways with like hammers and glass. It was very troubling. And doctors soon became aware of what she was up to and realized that she was wasting their resources and that she was faking a lot of this stuff. So she ended up having to doctor hop from one to another. When one would finally clock on to what she was up to, it was time for her to move on and find somebody else that she could trick into believing her various physical ailments. Beverly left school at the age of 16 and she got a job at a pub called The Fighting Cox. And while she was working there, she began her first ever relationship with a man called Steve Figs. Steve was tall, he was one year her junior, and he says that he was pretty unsure about Beverly, but that she basically demanded that she be his girlfriend. Apparently he bought her a ring, but she declined to set a date for their wedding. They would have sex just once a month. And apparently Beverly refused to hold his hand in public. They would often have violent fights where she would physically lash out at him. And it's said that at one time she kicked him in the groin so hard that he actually passed out. She also lied and told him that she'd had an earlier boyfriend who had raped her. This turned out to be a false allegation. Their relationship lasted two years and Biggs described Elliot as being abusive, aggressive, manipulative and deceptive. At some point, Elliot met an older nurse who offered to help her study for her nursing exams. And with this woman's help, Alec was able to, just barely, pass the exam which would allow her entrance into nursing school. And in 1988, she was accepted into Grantham College's School of Nursing Training. When she started at Grantham, she became quite fond of another female student there, and she would tell heaps of nasty little lies about Steve and her boyfriend, including that he had AIDS, which was a flat out lie. And of course, the pattern of illness and unexplained injuries continued to repeat itself here as well. And as soon as Alec moved into the nursing school dorm, odd things began to happen. While she was talking to other nurses, Beverly claimed that a poltergeist had stuck a carving knife in her pillow. This poltergeist had also set her curtains on fire and fed tablets to her landlady's dog. And at one stage, police were called in to investigate a kitchen fire and the smearing of human feces around the room and inside the refrigerator. Now, as well as this, Alec was hardly ever in class. She was constantly in the nurse's office with some ailment or another. But the college nurses soon clocked on to the fact that she was actually causing most of her symptoms. She was injecting saline into her breasts so that they'd be sore and swollen. She would swallow boiling water to present as a fever. And she missed like 126 days of school during her two year study period, which is a ton of time. And of course, her frequent absenteeism resulted in, unsurprisingly, her failure to pass the exams and be become certified. She retook them several times and finally she passed, but just barely. Because her performance was so poor, no hospitals would offer her a job. And she was actually the only member of her class not to immediately get a job after graduation. A few of the other nurses at the Grantham Hospital thought that Beverly Allett would benefit strongly from psychiatric help. 
but they sadly kept their thoughts to themselves. I mean, to be fair, how do you even broach that subject? And it was Grantham and Kestevan's desperate understaffing and lack of resources that finally opened the door for Beverly Allett. As soon as Beverly Allett stopped working on Children's Ward 4, the attacks mysteriously stopped. However, the home that she was staying at with her friend and family, weird things started to happen there now. One day, Tracy's brother Jonathan found bleach in his bed. On another occasion, the family dog began to foam at the mouth and convulse after Allett had fed him some pills. And then the final straw came when the family had gone to the market and Jonathan began to feel dizzy and unwell. He passed out and he was taken to hospital where they determined that he was suffering from a, you guessed it, hypoglycemic attack. And mysteriously, the last thing he remembered before he passed out was drinking a glass of juice that Beverly Allett had given to him. Finally, the Jobson family had had enough and they told the police of what had been happening having Beverly in their home. By this point, the children's blood had come back and there was no longer any doubt that they had suffered from a variety of attacks. Paul Crampton's blood work revealed astronomically high levels of insulin. 43,147 milliunits. That is one of the highest amounts ever found in a human being. And it is just simply impossible that an amount that high could be naturally occurring in a person. Beverly's other victims were shown to have shockingly high levels of either insulin or potassium in their systems. Although some had been killed or injured through other means, such as Katie Phillips. She'd been, sadly, squeezed to death or Kaylee Desmond, who had been injected with air, causing her lungs to collapse. The only real common factor among each of these victims and these terrible attacks was that nurse Beverly Allett was present and on duty for every single one of them. Beverly Allett was arrested on July 26, 1991, but it wasn't until November that she was formally charged. When police searched her house, they found the missing torn out pages of the duty roster along with a used syringe. And investigators were very shocked by Beverly Allett's reaction to her arrest. Despite the weight of the allegations she was facing, she seemed completely unfazed by everything that was going on. In fact, when she was arrested and taken to her holding cell, she immediately fell asleep. In fact, she slept so deeply that she had to be woken the next morning for her initial court hearing. Investigators said that they've never seen anybody act like that and that they would have expected her to be behaving in an anxious, stressed out fashion, but she just seemed completely unfazed. Investigators said that Alec remained calm under interrogation and continued to deny playing any part in the attacks. She said she was just doing her job, being a nurse and caring for her patients. She continued to refuse to confess to what she had done, and after a series of hearings, Beverly Allett was formally charged with four counts of murder, 11 counts of attempted murder, and 11 counts of causing grievous bodily harm. While waiting trial, Beverly Allett rapidly lost a whopping 70 pounds, having developed anorexia nervosa. And as usual, she complained of varying illnesses which continued to delay the start of the trial. But finally, on February 15, 1993, she could not delay any longer. Alec's trial lasted four months, most of which she was not present for because she was always sick. 
At the trial, prosecutors explained to the jury how Beverly Allett had been suspiciously present during every single episode, and how when she was not on the ward, the episode stopped. The evidence about the high insulin and potassium in the blood of these victims, as well as drug and injection marks, were also linked to Beverly Allett. She was also further accused of cutting off her victim's oxygen, either by smothering or tampering with the oxygen machine. Psychologists told the jury that Beverly Allett had Munchausen syndrome. This is when somebody injures or inflicts pain on themselves in order to gain attention. Psychologists also testified that Beverly Allett had then escalated to Munchausen syndrome by proxy. This is when somebody injures or induces symptoms in somebody else who is usually under their care in order to gain attention. It's usually quite odd for somebody to experience both of those things, but in Alec's case, she did. And throughout the entire time, despite the prosecution's pretty solid case against her, Beverly maintained her innocence the whole way through. But the jury didn't buy it. On May 28, 1993, Beverly Alec was found guilty of four counts of murder, three attempted murders, and six counts of grievous bodily harm. She was sentenced to 13 life sentences with a minimum of 30 years. Yet only one week into her sentence, Beverly Allett was transferred to the Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottinghamshire after prison officials determined that she was at much too high a risk of self-harm. Because Rampton is a hospital and not a prison, patients are often afforded a lot more freedom. Alec was given a private room with a television and was even allowed out on shopping trips. Needless to say, the victim's families and the community at large have been completely outraged by this, believing that once again Beverly Allett gets special treatment. And it is said that apparently Beverly Allett continued on her attention-seeking behaviour at Rampton, ingesting ground-up glass and pouring boiling water on her hands. In 1999, Katie Phillips and her family were awarded £2.25 million by the Lincolnshire Health Authority. This is to pay for the treatment and equipment that she will need for the rest of her life as a result of being a victim of this woman. Lincolnshire Health Authority did not accept liability for Katie's injuries, but did acknowledge that she deserved some compensation. The trail of destruction left behind by Beverly Allett on Ward 4 was so bad that the children's ward at Grantham and Kesteven Hospital was shut down permanently. Since then, she has finally admitted to three of the murders and six of the assaults. The UK's Home Office officially categorised Beverly Allett as one of the few convicted criminals who would never be eligible for parole, simply due to the absolute gravity of her crimes. During her life as a prisoner, the father of Liam, who was Beverly's first victim, Chris Taylor has publicly denounced Rampton as being a sham. Taylor claims that the facility is a mere daycare for people who should be treated as far more serious and dangerous criminals. And at this point, the facility has around 1,400 employees watching over 400 patients. And in May 2005, The Mirror reported that Allett had apparently received £40,000 in state benefits since she was imprisoned in 1993. In 2006, Allett applied for a review. The probation service subsequently contacted the victim's families, and to this point, Allett is still in Rampton. 
Since then, Beverly Allett has popped up now and again, and in 2018, she made the news again. It was reported that she was suffering from a near-fatal case of sepsis. Although the hospital never released any records or further information, leading many people to believe that this was just another case of Beverly Allett's attention-seeking, faking illness behavior. And just in February this year, public outrage was renewed again when it was reported that Beverly Allett received her COVID vaccination before many of her surviving victims, including Katie Phillips, who requires constant medical care due to the injuries sustained from what Beverly Allett did to her. Man, that case is a tough one. And that's all I have for you today on Beverly Allett. This story is just the worst and I cannot imagine what her parents must feel like and the rage they must experience knowing that she, I don't know, got off kind of so lightly, you know, like whew, what she did was so one of the worst things I've ever heard. Just so terrible. And it's terrifying to think that a nurse could do this to somebody, especially such young, vulnerable babies, you know? Like, you go to the hospital and to the doctors believing that these people are here to care for you and look after you, and instead, they are preying on the most vulnerable people. Oh, God, it's just really terrible. And it was an interesting case to cover. I first learned about Beverly Allett a few months ago. I know I'm probably quite late to the party, but I have been it's stuck with me, you know, since I first learned about it. So I am glad to have covered this. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you feel uh, you understand this case. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts down below. What do you think about her being sent to live in a secure facility? Do you think that we should have pity on her because she's so clearly mentally unwell? Or do you think that what she did is just too unforgivable and that no matter what mental disorder she suffers from it's kind of there's no way around it this case really made me question how i feel about justice and what i think is an appropriate punishment for somebody who commits something so terrible so i would love to hear your thoughts down below as always thank you for staying with me if you're here this far let me know if there's any cases you would like to hear about next and stay safe wash your hands wear a mask stay away from other people and i will see you in the next video Bye.